All right, today we're asking the question, um, do I really need the scriptures? Do I really need the scriptures? And I don't know if you've ever asked this question before, but I think it's one that uh, a lot of Christians or people who were raised in the church may ask. Do I, do I really need to read the Bible? And I've heard people say things like, yeah, I don't, I don't need to go to church. Um, I have my relationship with God. Uh, I don't need to read the Bible. Me and God are cool. Like, I pray all the time. Uh, I, don't, I don't really need the Bible. And I want to address that question today. And the, the short answer to that question is, yes, you really do need the scriptures. But I think what's, uh, what's helpful is to ask, for what? What do you really need the scriptures for? And I think oftentimes when people say they, they don't need the scriptures, or they don't need a Bible, or they don't need a pastor, or they don't need a church community, what they're really saying is that I don't need those things to be a Christian. I don't need those things to have salvation. I don't need those things to go to heaven. And you know what? All those things are true. You don't. You don't need to know the Bible in order to go to heaven. You just need to know the gospel. Think about the thief on the cross. Doesn't sound like he had much knowledge of the scriptures or he had done too much Bible study. But Jesus, through his confession of faith and trusting in him, that's all that matters. And really all we need in order to be saved and forgiven and receive the gift of eternal life is a relationship with Jesus Christ. To repent of our sins, put our trust in Him as Savior and Lord. It's that simple. But I want to go further than that today to say, is that all you want? Is that all you want? Is everything you do a salvation issue? Is everything you do, are you only going to do things if it means you're either going to go to heaven or hell? Is what I'm asking. When you say you don't really need the scriptures or you don't really need a church or you don't really need a Bible study or to listen to sermons or whatever it might be. And that you and you and God, you guys are cool, which is what a lot of people say. What you're really saying is I'm already going to heaven. I've got that figured out. My sins have already been forgiven on the cross. Stop adding more things to the plate that Jesus didn't put on my plate. And like I said, it is true. You don't need all those things to go to heaven, but not everything should be a salvation issue. And let me give you an illustration. Imagine if in a marriage, everything was a divorce issue. Like, honey, will you do the dishes for me? Well, are you going to divorce me? Because if you're not, then I'm not going to do it. And it's funny to think about. It's, it's kind of ridiculous, right? If, you know, if that was a real situation, everyone would laugh. But it's like we do that with God, right? And if we're like, God, if you're not going to break up with me and send me to hell, then mm, I'm not going to do these things. If you're not going to divorce me, then nah, I'm not going to try. If you're not going, if the threat of punishment isn't there, what motivation do I have to really seek you, to know you? further. And I think that if we have a genuine relationship with Jesus, it may not start with a knowledge of the scriptures, but I believe that if we truly love Jesus in response to his love for us, we should want to know as much about him as possible. We should want to follow him and shape our lives in accordance with his word. So the short answer for you as a Christian, and even as a non-Christian, is yes, you do need the scriptures. 
You need the scriptures in order to be saved because in the scriptures are the foundation of why the gospel is worth believing in the first place. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Without the scriptures, we don't have any reason to even know the Bible. We wouldn't know the gospel of Jesus that saves us. But even as Christians, we do need the scriptures. Why? Because we're not meant to merely just have eternal life insurance. We're not meant to just have a relationship with God just so he doesn't break up with us. That's not a healthy relationship with, among people. That's not what it looks like. And it, it for sure doesn't look that way with God. The central idea of today's text is that disregard for God's word always results in damage and sometimes results in destruction. Disregard for God's word always results in damage and sometimes results in destruction. As you read this passage, you should be asking yourself, wait, I thought David was a good guy. I thought David was a hero. He sure doesn't look like a hero here. And there's been one other time as we've been looking through First and Second Samuel where David didn't really look like a hero. Sadly, as David ages and he becomes more prominent as the king of Israel, he starts to look more and more like a villain. Of course, there's no real heroes in the Bible except Jesus Christ. David's just a human. He's just like us. And we can criticize him very easily. We can praise him very easily as well. But really, he's like us. We have our good moments. We have our bad moments. There are things we do well in obedience to God. There's things we don't do well in disobedience to God. So in that way, we can relate to him. But we shouldn't want to relate with his humanness if it means disregard for God's word that results in damage, for sure, and sometimes destruction. So the sermon in a sentence for us is this. Do not let ignorance of the scriptures bring damage or destruction into your life. Don't let ignorance of the scriptures bring damage and destruction into your life. And here's what I mean. There's going to be damage and destruction in your life from a lot of different reasons. But don't let your ignorance of the scriptures lead you to cause more damage and destruction than is out of your control. Instead, consume the scriptures to renovate your life. Consume the scriptures to renovate your life. You know, the Bible tells us we're all sinners. We all have a hereditary uh, spiritual illness called sin. And yes, we may have good intentions, but we're also evil. We're also, by default, selfish. We're also, by default, want to be God rather than to worship God. We need a renovation. We need a renovation not just in the exterior, but we need a renovation in the deepest part of our soul. We need a complete heart transplant and only Jesus Christ can provide that. Even after we become Christians, though, we, we know we're still not a work. We're not a work completed. We're still a work in progress. And I think it's important to ask yourself this question. Do I actually want a renovation in my life? Do I actually want to change? Do I actually want to be holy? Do I actually want to grow in virtue? Do I actually want to resemble the heart of Christ more and more? Do I want to be like him? And if your answer is no, 
And it means you're complacent in where you're at. And I think that's part of what's happening in David's story. As he ascends to the throne of Israel after a long period of uncertainty and, and strife, he's finally just about to become the king of Israel. But he starts to become complacent with a lot of his pursuit of the Lord. And here's the thing about complacency, and this might be a hard pill to swallow, but complacency is really just masked pride. It's like a combination of pride and laziness. It's basically saying, I'm good enough the way I am, and I'm too lazy or unmotivated to try to grow in any kind of way. And it's especially for the person like this that you really need the scriptures. I really need the scriptures. We all need the scriptures because nobody knows enough. Nobody obeys enough. And Jesus has commanded us to observe everything he's taught so what's going on in David's story? Let's zoom in a little bit here. In the first part of the chapter, we have kind of this, this uh, setting the scene. David's growing stronger and stronger while the house of Saul becomes weaker and weaker. Keep in mind, Saul recently died and his son Ishbosheth is made king of Israel while David is made king of Judah, one of the tribes of Israel, the, ma- the biggest one. And, and what's happening is that David is growing in his prominence while Ishbosheth is weakening and weakening. And the stage is kind of set for David to become the total king of Israel. Ishbosheth wasn't really a a significant character. The the only reason he had any significance at all is because of his general, Abner. Abner was the commander of Ishbosheth's father, Saul's army. And he's kind of really the political power behind the puppet king of Ishbosheth. So that's the scene that's set. In verse 2 to 5, we have a list of David's wives. Okay, David started off with one wife. Then he married Abigail. He got two wives. When he became king of Judah, he only had two wives. Now this is about seven years later. He's grown from having two wives to at least five wives. I mean, there could have been more that aren't named here. And as I read this passage, I was preparing uh, for the sermon. And, and, you know, we, we go through these passages in our daily devotionals. It really made me wonder, like, Did David not know what God said? Was he ignorant or was he disobedient? I mean, either way, he's disobedient, but was he just ignorant? It made me wonder what's going on in David's life, because if you'll flip with me, or you don't have to, but I'll read for you Deuteronomy 17, 17. If you want to turn there with me. Deuteronomy 17, I'll start at verse 14, actually. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 to 20. See here, it says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set over as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So keep in mind, Deuteronomy takes place way before King David. This is Moses. The whole book of Deuteronomy is essentially Moses' final sermon before he dies and before the Israelites come into the promised land. Let me pick up in verse 16. He must not acquire many horses for himself. This is talking about the future potential king. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way. 
Now look at verse 17. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, a, a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in, in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this, this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Deuteronomy 17. Generations before David becomes king, there's already laws in place for what the king is allowed to do and what the king isn't allowed to do. And one of the main things that you see on the list, he can't have a lot of horses. And he's not allowed to acquire many wives. But here we see David in direct violation of this. And it begs the question, did David really know the law? And I think this is a sincere question to ask, not just to be favorable to David, but keep in mind that David became king out of one of the darkest times in Israel's history. After the Israelites moved into the promised land, the period of judges was when everyone just declined morally. The moral virtues of the nation of Israel went into vast decline. There was mass murder. There was all kinds of, uh, of injustice. And it was because of that, that God raised up the prophet Samuel, who anointed Saul as king, and then also anointed David. One other thing to keep in mind is that the keepers of the scriptures, the keepers of the law, or the Torah, as the Jews called it, were supposed to be the priests. They were the, the tribe of Levi, of who the priests were. And in 1 Samuel, we hear that Saul slaughters all of the priests, except one. So there is a chance that David just really didn't know the law. But we can see that even though he didn't know the law, it didn't stop his sins from being destructive. People who don't really know the Bible, one of the kind of present day Western criticisms of the Bible is, oh, the Bible promotes polygamy. The Bible promotes polygamy and, you know, oppression of women and all these things. And I could, I could assure you the Bible does not promote polygamy just because it has polygamy in it. And going back to a little bit of reading comprehension here, but there's a difference between description and prescription. The Bible describes a lot of things, such as idol worship. But the Bible is not prescribing idol worship. You understand me? The Bible describes child sacrifice, but the Bible is not prescribing child sacrifice. Whereas the Ten Commandments, they're not just descriptions, they're prescriptions. Thou shalt not. Another way to think about it is the difference between indicative phrases and imperatives. An indicative indicates what something is, it's not telling you what you should do, whereas an imperative is telling you what should be done, not just what is. And when you look at the scriptures, Genesis 2, when God made the first man and woman, Genesis 2, verse 18 to 25, which we, we got to study last week, 
as an introduction to our biblical manhood and womanhood, we see what, ha- what, what did God create? The first marriage was monogamous. The first marriage was one man and one woman. And then it was because of the result of the fall that everything starting in the family got distorted and destroyed. You say, if God, if, if, if God had created two women and one man, you could make a case that the Bible promotes polygamy, but before sin entered the world, no, God had always intended one man and one woman. We see in Deuteronomy 17, 17, it doesn't say one woman specifically, but it says he must not accumulate many wives. And then in 1 Timothy 3, in the New Testament, after Jesus comes and he redeems, in 1 Timothy 3, 2, which is actually, uh, 1 Timothy 3 is the core passage for the whole study in biblical manhood. When it talks about exemplary men, it says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Even if you look at Old Testament examples of polygamy, you only really have examples of it causing conflict and strife. When you look at Abraham, him and Sarah were fine together until Sarah says, sleep with my servant Haggai, Hagar. And then as soon as Hagar has a son, there's strife between the women and strife between the sons. Jacob, he wanted to marry Rachel. But he got swindled into marrying Leah, and then he married Rachel as well. And the brothers hated each other so much that they faked Joseph's death only at the, at the plea of one of the brothers saying, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. And we see in David's example too, and you'll see as we, as we go through 2 Samuel, how really the, the destruction of David's legacy happened because he failed as a husband and as a father. This isn't the lesson of the sermon, but a lesson for all of us is that God cares about the family. He doesn't just care about what we can do for him. Yes, God wanted David to be king, but David was also a husband, a husband to many women, apparently. And there was all kinds of problems within his children and Tragically, in the future, David, in the future, in terms of where we're at in 2 Samuel, he's going to witness his children killing each other, raping each other. There is no good fruit of polygamy in the Bible. All it goes to show is that God is still faithful to accomplish his divine purposes in spite of and even orchestrating our evil. David could have had the excuse of, oh, I didn't have the Bible. I didn't have the scriptures. In fact, this could be a reasonable excuse because even the, even the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, most of it was passed down orally, not, not, not a written version. The oldest, ver- the oldest manuscripts of the Torah date back to third, the third to fourth century BC. But David ruled in the... 10th century BC. So it was before his time that they really started to compile these things in writing. But I think David learned the values. 
Because David, as you all know, wrote most of the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. He wrote 73 of them. And the book of Psalms opens. We don't know who wrote the first Psalm. But let me read it for us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Of course, as I said, we don't know if David wrote that, but I believe that David, as someone who contributed to much of the scriptures through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, learned the importance of, man, I need the law. Because he saw how his lack of following the law of God destroyed his family. And the greatest tragedies in his life were not before he became king, but after he became king. Tragically, even though David had plenty of wives already, in today's passage, we see him demand Michael to be given to him as his wife. Now, Michael was Saul's daughter, and David was the rightful husband of Michael. But Saul, because of his hatred towards David, even though he's sworn to give his wife in marriage to David, gave her to someone else. So in one sense, David's justified in demanding Michael be returned to her. But the author of the scriptures shows us this tragic scene. In verse 16, it says, Her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. And Abner said to him, go return, and he returned. There's no heroes in today's passage. Abner's no hero. David's not a hero. Michael's not a hero. Even this husband, he shouldn't have married a woman that already was wed to another man. And we see in today's passage just the destruction of deviating from God's law. God's design for the family beginning with marriage. And the sad part is that this is just a foreshadowing of what's going to happen later, which is David's greatest downfall. Very similar. And you'll see this sometimes, mostly a lot of times in the Old Testament, where there'll be parallel kind of plot lines. You see this story of David claiming another man's wife and taking her for his own. And you see him do that in 2 Samuel, I believe, chapter 11. But this time, he also murders the woman's husband. There's a lot of things we can do in this life. But there's only one thing that can really transform our hearts. There's only one thing that can really bring renovation from our, to our souls. And that is the Word of God. We need the Word of God to do the work in our hearts. Yes, as Christians, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but we don't just suddenly become perfect. The Holy Spirit works through the scriptures together to shape our hearts and do the work of constant renovation so that we align ourselves more and more with God's design for life in general and our life specifically. This is not only for kings like David, but for all men, whether single or married, all women, whether single or married, we all have a purpose in this life. And we all have things in our heart that we don't even know need renovating until we see an example. 
You ever go into someone's house and then it makes you start thinking differently about your house? <laughs> You're like, man, this house is so clean. <laughs> and then you immediately start thinking, man, my house, I, gotta, I should probably clean it more, right? Or you see a certain kind of decoration. You're like, wow, where did they get that shelving? That's some nice shelving. Maybe I should get that in my house. Where do we get that as Christians? We shouldn't get that just, just from looking at others. I'm not saying that it's not helpful to have godly examples. But we should look to the God who designed us. We should look to His Word. His Word shows us what our hearts ought to look like. So that we can pray for and even work towards the renovation of our heart. And, I, and hear what I'm saying here. This isn't just a salvation issue. And as Christians, we shouldn't be saying, I'm only going to do this if my salvation's on the line. That's, that's very immature. As we grow in our maturity and faith, we shouldn't just do things because there's a, there's a threat of something bad happening to us. But we should do things because we love God. Because we want to please Him. And because we start to have the maturity to realize that we don't need to try hard to make mistakes and cause damage and destruction in this world. It will happen. Even if we're lazy. Even if we don't try. But if we seek the Lord, He will bring renovation in our heart. And He will bring healing and restoration in us and through us to others. Jesus himself came and said, I did not come to abolish the law. He's not saying the Old Testament isn't suddenly irrelevant because I'm here. He said, I came to fulfill the law. What Jesus changed wasn't the significance of the Old Testament in terms of its value for, for teaching us the moral demand and the standards of God. But he's saying, you are no longer enslaved to follow these laws to have a right relationship with God. That's what I'm fulfilling on your behalf. But he teaches us to continue to live by the word of God. Deuteronomy 8.3 tells us, Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, that is the first thing he says to Satan. He says, Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Matthew 28, after Jesus' resurrection, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Obedience matters. Knowing the scriptures matters. If you can, turn with me to Hebrews 4.12 if you want. You don't have to, but I'm going to turn there. I want to read it for us. Hebrews 4.12 This is why we need the scriptures. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The scriptures are not just for you to look into to know God more. It is that, but it's not just that. When we read the scriptures, it tells us the word of God is living and active, that it does something to our hearts. 
It's like a mirror. It shows and discerns what is right and wrong and gives us the accurate reference point to know what is holy and what is unholy. But what's our motivation if it's not salvation? You might be sitting there saying, Pastor Barnaby, all this stuff sounds great, but if my salvation's not on the line, you know, I don't know why I would read Scripture, why I would consume, consume Scripture more. I feel pretty, pretty good with where I'm at in my life. And I want to ask, do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's not saying keep my commandments and then it means you love me. He's saying, if you love me, then you'll have the motivation to obey me. So whenever we don't want to obey or know God more, it means there's some kind of disconnect there with our love and our action of God. Do we love God? God who came down for us from heaven to, to take our sins on the cross who loved us even though we rejected him, even though we didn't even know, maybe we were ignorant, we needed a savior. He came and he let us know. No, I don't want you to die and spend eternity in hell. I don't want you to pay for your own sins because you can't. I'll pay for it. This God who loved us, this love, this perfect love of God, maybe we need to be reminded of that today and realize that that love alone should be enough to motivate us to seek him, to love him, to obey Him and what He's already given us. I know one of the best marriage advice I've ever got, I don't even remember who told me, it was multiple people, they said, never stop dating your wife. Never stop dating your wife. I mean, what does that mean? That means that it's easy to become complacent once you're married. Why? Because we think of dating as, as the chase, right? You're like, i got to date this person, i got to prove to him that I'm a good mate. You know, i got to convince them and you know, trick them into marrying me. And then once they marry me, they're bound by law. So they can't just leave me or I need to make it really difficult for them to leave me. Is that how we think about marriage? No, we don't, right? Or I hope we don't. But it's like once you have that security of marriage, you can easily become complacent. But never stopping to date your wife or your spouse means, no, you're still going to show how special they are to you. You're still going to make time and put in the energy to love them, to know them more instead of thinking, ah, I know everything about you. We dated for years. I know everything. No, you learn more and more every day. It's not only like that in our relationship with God, but it's even more so. How arrogant will we be to say that, God, I know enough about you. I don't need to know any more about you. I don't need to read the Bible. I know you. We're together. I'm saved. Lastly, I want us to think about this illustration as I remind us of our sermon in a sentence. Do not let ignorance of the scriptures bring damage or destruction into your life. David, let's just say, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Okay, I don't know if this is true, but let's say it is. Let, let, let's, say, it, it, let's say David just didn't have a chance to learn these things about marriage and, and what the king should do and shouldn't do, even though they're in the scriptures and there's a good chance he did know. Even if he didn't know, we don't have that excuse. The Bible is not only existing in print, it's all over the internet. We have more access. To, we can have the Bible read to us, read to us on our phones. How could we let the ignorance of the scriptures allow damage and destruction in our life? 
Trust me, there's plenty of other things that will bring damage and destruction in your life that demand your attention. But the things that really matter, relationships, family, church, community, these things God has designed for us. And He is the one who can bring that renovation in our hearts. So let's consume the scriptures to renovate our lives from the inside out. Imagine if uh, you got a speeding ticket. Cop pulls you over. They always ask, do you know how fast you were going? Right? I don't know. I don't know what the right answer to that question is. I, I just say no. <laughs> I don't. But what if, what if they ask you, do you know what the speed limit is? Does not knowing the speed limit prevent you from getting a ticket? Could you say, oh, yeah, I, mean, I know you guys have those speed limit signs out there, but, you know, I just don't really pay attention to them. My eye, they don't catch my eye, you know. Would that be an excuse? No. Of course, this isn't an issue of salvation, but I am saying when we, when we see the damage and destruction in our life, are we going to say, oh, I mean, I, I have the Bible, but... I mean, I didn't really read it, you know? Like, you have those speed limit signs, but yeah, I don't read them. Nobody looks at those. That's not an excuse. Let's consume the scriptures. It's for our own good. It's to help the Lord do a renovation in our heart to heal us and even prevent a lot of damage and destruction that, be, that can be caused in our hearts and through us and let Him heal and renovate those things in us and through us for others. This is why Jesus came. This is why the Word became flesh. So that we can know God's goodness and that we can respond to His love. Would you respond to His love today? Let me pray for us and then I'll lead us in a time of, of uh, yeah, I'll lead us in a time of, of reflection and then I'll pray for us. If we could just all close our eyes, I want to, I want to, I want to pose that question again. Do you want renovation in your life? Do you want renovation in your heart? Or are you complacent? Maybe you're lazy. Maybe you're just arrogant. Maybe you think you're good enough. I don't know. But I want to ask you the question again today. Do you want renovation in our life? Because I know for sure, myself included, all of us here still have a lot of work to do in terms of our character, in terms of our holiness and our purity. And as, you, as, we, as we reflect and ask that question, I just want to give this opportunity. If there's anyone here, if you haven't made that decision to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, that initial act of turning and saying, yes, Jesus, I want you to be the king of my heart. I want to begin this process of becoming your child. If you haven't made that decision before, I just want to give you that opportunity now. You can make that decision now. If you want to make that decision, I just want to ask you to raise your hand. If you want to raise your hand and you want to give your life to Jesus and say, yes, I want Jesus to begin that renovation process in my heart as a child of God. I want to trust in him. Do that today. And secondly, for Christians that are here, I want to say, yeah, do you really want to know God? Because if we don't, 
there's probably something that's not making sense there. Something, some kind of disconnect between how much God has loved us, how generous and perfect and overflowing and overwhelming his love was for us on the cross. We ought to love him back. It's like the very least we can do. We're not paying, our, paying uh, for our sins in return. It's already covered. Do we really want to know God? Do we really want to obey him and glorify him? These ought to be the, the desires that motivate us as Christians, not just, is my salvation on the line? I want to give you some time to think about a personal action step you can make. And I want to encourage you to do so in regards to the scriptures. That you consume the word of God to know him more, to know yourself in light of what the scriptures teach about you. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the teaching of your word. We thank you for the examples in scripture, Lord. Thank you that even though David is such an exemplary leader in so many ways, Lord, he's, he's still just a man, a sinful man. And he, he serves as an example to us of how ignorance of your law, whether it was willing disobedience or accidental disobedience, Lord, there's damage and destruction that comes from that. So Lord, we thank you that we have greater access to your scriptures, to your commandments than ever before in all of history. And Lord, we pray that you would increase our hunger and our desire to serve you, to love you, to honor you, that you would do a work of renovation in our hearts each and every day, that we would grow in our mercy, in our grace, in our forgiveness in our integrity, in our honesty, in our self-control, in our gentleness, and all the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, we pray that you would bear those things in our hearts as we submit to you. Help us to be disciplined, to seek you, to never stop dating you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.